Well, as we think about our life together here at Oakmont in the coming week and weeks, I hope you'll look inside your Order of Worship Bulletin and see those places of involvement and participation and ministry and service. And you also notice in our worship bulletin today that we're going to be receiving an in-gathering a little bit later in the service during our response time. It will go for the good work of the North Carolina Baptist men and also Women's Missionary Union. Our Baptist men organization, especially at a time like this over the last several weeks, has been extremely active in our country. They are one of the largest disaster uh, recovery and relief organizations in the world. And we have a lot of people in our church in the past who have uh, volunteered. Tom, I think about you. Tom Reese is a great example of, uh, of some Oakmonters who have been a part of involved in, in feeding stations and um, uh, they do mud outs and rebuilding of homes and things of that nature. So as you give financially, understand that you are facilitating and you are participating in the good work of this disaster recovery and disaster relief efforts that are taking place in many different places around our country. And also, I hope beyond your money that you will pray. You'll continue to pray for the people, the families that have been affected and by the volunteers who are going to share their time and their energy uh, and share Christ on our behalf. Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning. We've just heard about the Bible, and there may be a pew Bible in front of you. If you're on the front pew, it may be below you or on your phone as uh, Joshua Brazil brought his phone and mentioned that many of us can receive um, uh, copies of the scripture by way of our phones. But we're in Matthew's gospel this morning, the first gospel, the 20th chapter. And we're continuing to look at some of the women, some of the women of the New Testament. And this morning, we're going to look at Amab, the mother of James and John. You know, back in the biblical days, and I think we've talked about this on many occasions, but, you know, the biblical days were a patriarchal society when men ruled and reigned. And so many times women were identified by their husbands. Or you may be identified, if you're a child, by your father. But seldom does a woman, um, you know, her children may not be identified by her necessarily, and certainly a husband would not be identified by his wife. So we're going to see here in this text that this mom, and we don't know her name, we just know that she's the wife of Zebedee and she has two boys. So let's read this text, beginning with verse uh, 20 of chapter 20 of Matthew. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now, of course, these two boys are one of the 12 disciples. What is it that you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them, speaking to the boys now. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. 
These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, now this would be the other ten disciples, when the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as, as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, you may be familiar with a term, and it's helicopter parent. A helicopter parent. It's a term that was first used in a 1969 book entitled Parents and Teenagers. In that particular book, teenagers described many of their parents as hovering over them like a helicopter, hence the name helicopter parents. In fact, the term became so popular or popular enough that it became a dictionary entry in the year of 2011. So what's a helicopter parent? Well, a helicopter parent, that particular parenting style involves over-focusing on any child at any age. Typically, a helicopter parent takes too much responsibility for his or her child's experiences, failures, or successes. It's an over-focusing. It's an over-controlling. It's an over-protecting. It's an over-perfecting excess parenting style. Now, American college administrators began using the term in the early 2000s as the oldest millennials began reaching college age. These millennials had baby boomers who were their moms and dads, and these baby boomer parents earned notoriety for practices such as calling their children when they got to college and waking them up in the dorm room early in the morning to make sure that they would make it to class on time. Or they may go to the professors directly and complain about the grades that their children had received in that professor's class. The Chronicle on higher, uh, of Higher Education reported that helicopter parents continued advocating for their adult children even at the graduate school level, such as campaigning for their adult children's admission to law school or business school, for example. And as this cohort entered the workforce, human resources officials report that helicopter parents are showing up in the workplace or they are phoning managers to promote their adult child or to negotiate salaries for them. I'll just give you a moment to let all that kind of sink in. Helicopter parents. 
Well, as I thought about helicopter parents this week, I thought to myself, now Jesus has a helicopter mob. He's got to deal with a helicopter parent that's at work here with these two boys, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, in order for us to make sense of this text this morning, we've got to remember three things that Jesus has already said in the gospel according to Matthew. Three different times. In Matthew chapter 16, in Matthew chapter 17, and in the three preceding verses before we even get to this story. Three times in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus has told his disciples that he must go up to Jerusalem and die. Now go with me back here in Matthew's gospel to verse 17 for a moment. And let's just read this so that you can let this kind of be absorbed uh, in your soul before we move on to this story. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, took them aside, and said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. That sounds pretty clear to me. How about you? They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. You got any part of that sentence that isn't real clear to you? And then Jesus ends, and on the third day, he will be raised back to life. And then we get to verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. So following this third passion statement or third passion prediction that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem to die, this is when Mama makes her request. Now you need to know in Mark's gospel, Mama is not involved. It's just the two boys who make this request to Jesus. Apparently, Luke is so embarrassed by the whole, whole episode, he doesn't even record it in his gospel. So what in the world are Mama and her boys thinking about? Jesus has just said, I'm going up to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified. On the third day, I'm going to come back to life. What's mama and her boys thinking about? In asking Jesus at this point, can my sons be your vice president? One vice president? One secretary of state? When your new administration begins, Jesus, will you put one on the right and will you put one on the left? Now, Jesus does a good job. Jesus must have taken some marriage and family therapy counseling courses because he does a really good job of detriangling himself from mama and the boys and himself. 
because the text says that he doesn't answer back to helicopter mom. He turns to the boys. I, I'm thinking he is assuming that the boys have been in on mama's plot. And that's when Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking. You, you think you and mama know what you're asking, but you don't. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Meaning, can you drink the cup of suffering? Can you drink this cup of pain? Can you even drink the cup of death if that's what it requires and is involved? Can you follow me and go all the way even to the point of death? Now, that's the point where Jesus tells James and John that that greatness of sitting on his right hand or on his left hand, being his vice president or secretary of state, is not his call. It's not Jesus' choice. He says, it's my Father's choice. It'll be something that God will determine at some point in the future. And furthermore, Jesus goes on to tell these two boys, you will drink of the cup. You will drink of the cup of pain and suffering and trouble in the future. Now, this is the point where the other ten get wind of helicopter mom's plot involving the two boys, and the text tells us they're indignant. So Jesus has to call them all around him, and that's when Jesus completely inverts. I mean, he just turns upside down. All of the standards for success and greatness that we have in our world, the standards of success in the workplace, the standards for success and greatness in the classroom, in the academic world, the standards for success, hey, we're in football season, right? On the athletic field. The standards for success just in the world, period. Jesus turns everything upside down. This is when he tells all 12 of them, and I'm sure helicopter mom was still around to hear what Jesus had to say. Jesus says, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Now, the last time I checked, slaves and servants were not at the top of the pecking order. You agree? Slaves and servants are not at the top of the pecking order. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then Jesus goes on to say, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for men. Now, I'd like to think that you and I are Jesus' servants his slaves, his followers. And you know, being a follower of Jesus, being a servant of Jesus, being a slave of Jesus certainly can mean a lot of things for a lot of people. Jesus' prediction for James, it actually comes true. If you read over in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, you will find out that James becomes one of the first Christian martyrs. He is put to death by King Herod Agrippa I. Go read it. 
fact, we looked at that some weeks ago when we were looking at another woman in the New Testament. Now, his brother John, on the other hand, is reported to have lived a long life in faithful servants, service and obedience to Jesus. So for most of us, servanthood, following Jesus, doing Jesus' work, will probably not mean giving up our life for him. But if we're going to take it seriously, following Jesus, being his servant, probably will mean drinking out of the cup. Drinking out of that cup of those daily struggles where God wants to use us in those places that involve some pain. They may involve some suffering. It may involve insults or having our character or our reputation or maybe even our motives questioned. Following Jesus and being his servant, my guess is, I know it has been for my life, my guess is it might be for yours, will mean being inconvenienced on a fairly routine basis. Following Jesus and being his servant, I think, means getting your hands and your feet dirty and your heart wounded and torn. That's what it means to follow Jesus and to be his servant. Gary Thomas has written a book. It's entitled The Face of God. Tell me if you agree what Gary Thomas writes here. He says, the road we travel is anything but easy. Anybody in here had a completely easy road in your life? The road we travel is anything but easy. It is true that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. But it's equally true that the plan is often fraught with tension and uncertainty and with emotional, spiritual, and physical pain. Has that been the case for you? But you see, he, here's the temptation. For those of us who really want to be faithful, authentic followers of Jesus, for those of us who want to be his servants, I think the real temptation for us, and, and, and we do it sometimes explicitly, but I think most of the time we just do it kind of beneath the surface. We do it implicitly under the cover. We, we don't even realize we're doing it. For us, the temptation is to draw that line in the sand. Draw the line in the sand, and we tell God, don't cross this line as you call us out to be your servants. Do not cross this line, God, if those assignments include those times of tension and uncertainty and pain. Don't cross it, God. Don't want any of it. And you know, God is a gentleman. He is not a helicopter God. He won't hover over you. He won't force you to do something that you don't want to do. He won't insist that you do things his way. He created you with free will. You get choices. So he's not a helicopter God. But the reality is, and you're going to have to decide this, 
The reality is that some of us may be structuring our lives. Maybe we've structured the lives of our children. Maybe they're now structuring the lives of your grandchildren. Who knows? But some of us, at a minimum, are structuring our own lives in a way that suggests that being a servant of Jesus is easy. Sign up and it's easy. It's a way that never promises to stretch us. It's a way that never promises us any pain or any suffering. Some of you remember Pope Benedict XVI. You recall that Pope Benedict XVI resigned. We haven't had too many popes in the history of the church that have resigned. He is now Pope Emeritus. He resigned in 2013. But when he was elected as the leader of the world's 1.1 billion Roman Catholics in 2005, he later wrote about that experience of realizing that his election was going to happen. You know how they get behind closed doors and they cast votes as the cardinals and they make a decision about who's going to be the next pope. And Benedict XVI realized as the voting continued that he probably was going to be elected. This is what he wrote shortly after that experience. He says, as the trend in the ballots slowly made me realize that in a manner of speaking, the guillotine would fall on me. Somehow I'm not quite sure about that analogy of being elected pope and a guillotine cutting your head off. But that's what he wrote. That the guillotine would fall on me. I started to feel quite dizzy. He had some physical effects just entertaining that thought. He said, I thought that I had done my life's work and now could hope to live out my days in peace. I told the Lord with deep convictions, don't do this to me. Draw the line in the sand. Don't do this to me. You have younger and better who could take up this great task with a totally different energy and with a different strength. Evidently, said Pope Benedict, this time he, meaning God, didn't listen to me. The Pope said that during that secret conclave when they were voting that a fellow cardinal slipped him a note and reminded him, Benedict XVI, of a sermon that he had preached for the funeral mass of Pope John Paul II some time before in which he referenced the biblical story where Jesus calls Peter to follow him. This is what Benedict wrote. He said, my fellow brother wrote me, if the Lord should now tell you, follow me, then remember what you preached. Do not refuse. Be obedient. This touched my heart because the ways of the Lord are not comfortable, but we were not created for comfort, but for greatness, for good. So in the end, all that I could say was yes. I am trusting God and I am trusting in you, dear friends. So what do we say when we're tempted to be a helicopter parent? 
Or what are we do or say when we're tempted to be one of the helicopter parents, boys, and we've got this plot going, thinking that the road to greatness is found in power or in authority or in influence or in education or in money or in a good job or you just fill in the blanks. What are we to do when we're fooled into thinking that the road to greatness is an easy road? doesn't require any sacrifice on our part. Well, I think we need to remind ourselves of Benedict's words, the ways of the Lord are not comfortable. I think we need to remind ourselves of Gary Thomas's, road, uh, uh, Gary Thomas's words that the road we travel is not easy. And we need to remind ourselves that that road is often filled with tension and uncertainty and pain. And finally, we need to remind ourselves of the words that Jesus gave us in this text about servanthood. The words that said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And even beyond Jesus' words, we need to remember his example us on that cross. By the way, do you think people can grow and change and learn their lessons about things, even things that Jesus might tell them? You know, if you go towards the end of Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, the writer of Matthew tells us that at the point of Jesus' death, that there were three women who were left standing by Jesus' side. One of those women was the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Isn't it fascinating that she moves from helicopter parent, put my boys on your right and your left hand, to being at the point of the cross. She finally got it. Following Jesus takes sacrifice and it's not easy. Let's pray together. God, forgive us for those moments in our lives where we have maybe suggested to ourselves our children, to each other. That the road of servanthood and the road of following you is an easy one. There's no pain, there's no challenges, there's no sacrifice. Lord, take us to the cross and may we too be found there with the mother of these boys, these sons of Zebedee. May we too be reminded this day of what you have done for us, that you came to offer your life as a ransom for many. Hear our prayer as we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.